Welcome to the Seminole Wars. In this podcast, we explore how the Seminole Wars came to be, how they were fought, and how they still resonate some two centuries later. I am your host, Patrick Swan, and our show is a production of the Seminole Wars Foundation, found online at www.seminolewars.us. We are recording today from the homestead of the Foundation in Bushnell, Florida. Thank you for listening. Dr. Joe Kanesh, welcome back to the second of our two-part episode discussing fear and anxiety on the Florida frontier. In our first episode, we went into terrain and climate and a number of on-the-ground things that Seminole and soldiers uh, suffered from. In this episode, we're going to look at a larger picture, some of the underlying causes that started the Second Seminole War. We'll look at uh, some of the places and incidents where it was actually waged and why. And then we're going to look at strategy, the operations, the tactics, and how successful they were. So as we get started here, we'll take a look at, at the causes. It's tempting to attribute the Second Seminole War as starting solely because of the passage of the Indian Removal Act. No Removal Act, no war. But the causes, at least of the Second Seminole War, are more complicated than that in Florida. What part did miscommunication along the border with Georgia and Florida play in uh, there even being a Second Seminole War? Well, the constant raids back and forth uh, that had been going on uh, for years, as a matter of fact, you know, going back to the late 1700s in particular, uh, people seem to ignore that for whatever reason. Many years ago, uh, I did a paper for the Florida Historical Society, uh, which was published in one of the proceedings, dealing with uh, the striving for cattle and, and land on which to raise the cattle in this constant pressure. I alluded to that once earlier, uh, but more specifically, uh, the, the wiregrass people in Georgia in particular uh, definitely had, you know, the, the land in northern Florida is very similar. It's you can almost say it's, it, it, the border really doesn't exist when it comes to topography. It's only a political border. But for the most part, you know, those people wanted to have expand their cattle uh, range further south, and they were willing to go to war to do that. And the constant raiding back and forth between Seminoles and Miccosukies, especially the Miccosukies along the area in northern, northeastern Leon County and into Jefferson County, uh, got to be pretty brutal. And uh, so as a result, you know, that uh, it is one of the most violent frontiers when you take a look at it overall uh, in American history. Uh, the area between Georgia and somewhat Alabama, but mostly Georgia uh, and northern Florida, uh, is a constant battleground uh, since the days of the British and, and the American Revolution. So, it, you know, it's, it's a long-term kind of thing. Um, the area around Miccosukee and, uh, is, was one of the more contested areas. As you recall, when Jackson came into Florida in 1818, one of his goals was to destroy uh, the uh, Miccosukee settlements up near Lake Miccosukee in northeastern Leon County, northwest, northeast of Tallahassee. I always try to remind people, as my friend Dale Cox has done a number of times also, you know, they destroyed over 300 Indian houses. And I want you to stop and think about it. That's more an Indian uh, housing units, if you will, than existed in all of St. Augustine or Pensacola. In other words, the settlement at Miccosukee was a larger settlement population-wise and uh, housing-wise than the two largest towns in Florida at the time. People don't even think about it, but that's how much was was, was destroyed at that point in time. And, of course, the, the pushing further south, as we know, 
uh, particularly under a number of the Georgia governors, uh, Rabin and others, you had a real push to uh, drive all the Indians out of Georgia uh, and out of Florida because that was an area uh, gets into things like the raids on uh, for the cattle and raids for slaves and, and uh, vice versa. People forget that Seminoles and, and uh, Creeks and others did practice slavery also, uh, and therefore it was a valuable piece of property to them, whether they it was the, as severe as anything in the white uh, settlement, that's, that's a total debate that uh, uh, I'll leave to Larry Rivers and, and Cantor Brown. It was a very severe thing uh, in those areas, but the Seminoles and Miccosukis uh, were much more attuned to a very lenient form of slavery, uh, basically more like a, a serfdom in the ancient world, uh, in the old world. Uh, in other words, they paid tribute and we provide protection, etc., from anybody coming for you, which they did. And um, that, of course, is part and parcel of the same whole story. And I think we sometimes forget that, uh, that you know, slavery, cattle, land, shall we say, just envy for the, uh, as I kind of pointed out earlier, uh, the fact that many of the headmen of the tribes were actually living better uh, than most of the Georgia settlers in the Wirefrost frontier. Uh, there had to be a little uh, envy that these quote-unquote savages, uh, and that's what you always hear the word used all the time, uh, how does anyone be a savage if you're practicing three crop rotation, uh, you're living in houses that are a clapboard with cedar shake shingles, uh, things of this nature, uh, and using your European utensils, iron and, and uh, uh, some tin, uh, and of course pewter if you're the upper class, like uh, uh, Macintosh or someone like that, uh, all of a sudden, you know, you, these people are no longer savages. They, they, they're better than we are, kind of thing, and then we're going to get even with them. Uh, we want what they have and then some. And a lot of that has to be put into it. So it's a it's a tremendous con conflict uh, amongst various uh, two different types of civilization. And I will call it civilization because, well, savages don't have they're not civilized. They can well, I got news for you, these guys were, <laughs> and uh, it, it makes a it makes it a whole lot of uh, difference when it comes to the attitude people have towards going to war or not going to war at that particular time. It all plays part, as you pointed out, it's a very complex thing, and it's continuous. Uh, you know, Indian removal is 1830, but we've got raids going on uh, in central Florida, uh, say around uh, the Gainesville and Ocala areas, uh, in the 1820s, 1826. Don't forget that we even have a, uh, a settlement or a fortification up on the Suwannee River uh, called Fort Duval. Uh, people don't even know about it, but it's there, or, or was there, uh, and it was kept, uh, kept in time for about, I think it was two and a half, three months, uh, to basically yeah, <laughs> try to control the Indians in that area and, and get them out of the area. And uh, it was very, very scary. Uh, and not only that, but stop and think also that Fort, when Fort Brooke was founded uh, in 1824, uh, what, what was going on? And when you take a look at the post returns and the letters that uh, 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 Brooks sent, um, he's not going to send anybody further south of Fort Brook because he only had two companies there. And he had heard that the blacks and uh, natives in that area outnumbered him. And he was more afraid of them uh, than he was anything else coming up and attacking Fort Brook because he didn't have the manpower mm -hmm. to control. 
uh, a force that size. I mean, this is the kind of things, you know, folks, this is long before the Seminole War. You've already got a, uh, a major officer in a major, which has now become, becoming uh, Cantonment Brook at the time it became Fort Brook, as we all know, uh, actually worried about his command uh, because they outnumbered and uh, may have outdone his people. When we talk about the Dade battle and we say, well, this was the opening shot uh, of the Second Seminole War, there were actually skirmishes and, and encounters going on before that, but just not as large an engagement. Well, there were a number of them from local militia, mostly. Uh, and, you know, they would uh, attack somebody's settlement uh, and the local militia would get out and get 30 or 40 men uh, and go riding off into the sunset and hopefully catch somebody, which most of the time they didn't. Uh, it already was apparent uh, from the way the Seminoles reacted and the way they attacked. They already knew that if the Army got involved, they were not going to be able to fight full-blood full skirmishes, uh, European-style or anything else. They, they were smart enough to know this is not what's going to win it for us or uh, wear down the white man. Uh, and essentially that's uh, what's the overall, and I, I think the overall strategy of the Seminoles is simply wear them down. Uh, you know, make it so costly, make it so dangerous, make it so difficult uh, that in the end they're going to give up. In this particular case, the Seminoles had already decided pretty much uh, they knew they couldn't uh, defeat an out-and-out -out army, so they were simply going to wear us down. And they came close. They did come close. And the military, as you know, uh, it was so bad here. Uh, that the officers, we had more officers resign their commission in, what, 37, 38, uh, than any other time in West Point history because they did not want to come to Florida. Florida was a death trap, and they didn't want to come here. And I think that speaks volumes on just oh, the reputation of the war and the problem of morale uh, within the Army group itself, which is, uh, again, something that, you know, the, the Seminoles... Uh, have to have a high morale because this is their land. Here's the army being uh, being sent down there to uh, essentially waste their lives uh, going after uh, attempting to drive out people they can't catch. It's uh, it's uh, that's that's morale depleting uh, if there ever was one. In your book, you write that the war was experienced differently in scattered locations throughout Florida. What do you mean by that? Well, you take a look at the plantation economy of East Florida. Three major plantations that were owned by Joseph Hernandez, uh, general of the Florida militia, uh, and overall commander of that group. And what you had at Spring Garden, you know, one of the most profitable plantations in North America at the time. Uh, I mean, we're talking small fortunes here. Uh, these are a well-to-do planter class, our what the English aristocracy might have desired uh, when they had Florida and the Spanish uh, upper class tried to desire a little bit. The Americans had actually done it, uh, and they were making some very profitable. You know, Dummett Grove, uh, uh, Douglas Dummett's uh, uh, plantation, uh, what we have at New Smyrna, etc. There were a lot of very beautiful places uh, making a lot of money. All of a sudden, war breaks out. Where you know they get hit by the Seminoles, and they may get, and I mean they got hit. By the time they got done after the Battle of Dunlawton, which was commanded by Benjamin A. Putnam, he was out there with the Florida militia. They're not a well-trained unit. They're not well provided. Matter of fact, they provided their own weapons for the most part. Many of them were shotgun type of 
weapons, as a matter of fact. Uh, that's what you want to use in the bush anyway, isn't it? Um, as we found out later, again, um, we relearn these lessons all the time for some reason or other. So you had a very, uh, in East Florida, you had a plantation type of society, a la the old English aristocracy concept of the plantation. You get towards central, uh, middle of Florida, as we called it back then. Uh, then you get into the cotton plantations. These guys were on the East Coast were raising all sorts of things, uh, including uh, indigo, rice, kind of those kind of things were still being grown even in the American era. But in central, in the middle of Florida, uh, particularly in Madison County, all the way through the Red Hills country, uh, you're talking cotton plantations, a la what you would find in, in Georgia, did find in. Uh, contemporary Georgia and Alabama, those that were prospering at the time. And they have a little bit different mentality. Uh, they also, of course, uh, have large cattle herds, many of them. Uh, so you do have uh, that going on. And, and then West Florida uh, is a little different altogether. We don't even, matter of fact, you don't even talk about West Florida for the most part. I included an essay on uh, the Creek War and slash Seminole War in Western Florida uh, that my friend Brian Rucker has talked about a number of times, been none. Uh, it's a different world out in West Florida. Uh, and fact, they were still fighting uh, as late as 1847. And we, we seem to forget also that the last surrender of the Seminoles was on the Aquacne River just outside of Tallahassee hmm. in, 1840, in 1843 <laughs> when Ethan Allen Hitchcock uh, finally took the surrender of Posofsky. Uh, and his group, you know, so it's, you know, uh, that, and a lot of the um, smaller farms in, in the central, the area around Tallahassee, Leon County, Jefferson County, especially Gadsden County, uh, and, and somewhat in the Jackson, those are more scattered kind of things, and boy, they were, they got whacked, the Green Chairs families out, you know, they get essentially, uh, won't say totally wiped out, because there were three survivors, I think three survivors, uh, I don't remember the exact number, I think there are three. That's where we get chairs, crossroads, et cetera, just outside of Tallahassee here. They get, you know, they're that close to Tallahassee, and they're, they're getting wiped out. Uh, Gadsden County had constant uh, uh, raids on individual farms. They would, you know, wait for them to be isolated and then, you know, pick their time, went out and hit the families and take care. It, it's a different type of war uh, as far as, you know, they went after individual family units versus a large plantation with, uh, overseers and uh, armed men every so often. Uh, it's it, what you would find in, in eastern Florida more uh, than, than here. Uh, and then, of course, in those areas that were settled uh, in West Florida, and there are not many, uh, you know, they get hit pretty well, too, except for Pensacola. And, and I think there's a lot of uh, reason for that, of course, is that during the days of the Spanish, Pensacola uh, was a major supplier of weaponry and, and lead, etc., uh, to the Creek Confederation and uh, the Seminoles in West Florida too. So you know, they didn't have as much action out there. But the main main part of uh, the peninsula of Florida, uh, isolation, uh, ambush, uh, knocking off letter carriers, things of that nature, very very common, very frustrating uh, for the citizens of Florida, white citizens of Florida, uh, trying to make a living out here. When you can't, you know, you can't even go outside without having to carry a weapon, and you better hope your family's old enough to fire one uh, to at least try to provide minimal protection, because there's no army, and the militia, well, you're part of the militia. <laughs> so, 
uh, it's a different, it, each area had different specialties, and each one of them got hit uh, differently depending on what the needs were of the Seminoles, who basically dictated uh, how they, uh, the first campaigns were going to be conducted against them. So you're, you know, you're going to have to run and catch us. And, of course, the Army was not very good at doing it. And you didn't mention, but um, it was important as well, South Florida and even Key West. Well, yeah, when we get, when we, yeah, well, Kiyoeso, of course, was uh, at one time very much under uh, under siege, and I have written on that, too, of course, but uh, I didn't really get into it because the uh, southeast Florida, uh, which I come from Fort Lauderdale area, so originally, way back when, that was one of those areas that was uh, into county production uh, and making flour. Bill Cooley and his family, which were massacred on New River uh, while he was out uh, uh wrecking the Gil Blas uh, uh, Spanish vessel that was uh, sunk off uh, Fort Lauderdale, what we now call Fort Lauderdale. Um, there was no fort at the time, by the way. <laughs> so, uh, And some of his uh, neighbors saw or heard the, the shooting and the killing of, of, the, of the Cooley family. They got picked off because they were isolated. Cooley, of course, was a uh, justice of the peace, and one of the Indians had been killed by another white settler, uh, and, and some kind of trade dispute. We don't really know the exact nature of it, uh, but Cooley did not act in, uh, in, at least as far as the Indians were concerned, the, the Seminoles of that area were, uh, did not act fairly, uh, did not give them justice, which was a different version of, uh, of justice that uh, whites were supposed to practice. And the guy got off, uh, and they took it out on Cooley. They killed his entire family and his tutor. And that happened just eight days after the uh, Dade battle. So it gives you an idea that, that that was, again, another thing that was probably timed to, to spread terror throughout the areas uh, of Florida. And that was part of the, I think, overall strategy, too. Is you, you hit Ocala, you hit the, the Dade Command, uh, you hit the plantations in East Florida, uh, and you hit the Southeast Florida. You're, you're, uh, you're showing that we can hit you anywhere you are. And I think that mentality was brilliant. Uh, first of all, as a, as a military strategy, uh, and it also, of course, you know, makes the whites divide their forces if they're going to try to find them, and it makes them easier to isolate and fight uh, in small units. Which community would you say was hardest hit, or can you say? I can't see any particular one, but as far as the economic values of the day, uh, East Florida, um, with, with the loss of all those, you know, white, uh, Hernandez lost three um, plantations of great size. Uh, I've already mentioned Spring Garden. How uh, well that was doing. We're talking. Uh, we're talking of bringing in an income of half a million a year. I mean, that's a lot of cash. Uh, I mean, it's a, it was a very, very prosperous plantation. That got wiped out. Uh, Dumas plantations. All of these uh, major things are rather, rather strident as far as the people are concerned. What's going on? So. It's it's important throughout the long conflict. The policy of the U.S. Yeah. government, the, the policy of the U.S. government did not change. It was Indian removal, whether it was peaceably or forcible. And uh, something that makes su surprise people is so they'd have big battles and they'd capture Indians and they didn't just execute them. They actually said, "Okay, now we've got you and we're shipping you off." So the policy of Indian removal stayed throughout. But um, some folks looking at this. Some in the battlefield mused, and some in Washington City also mused that extermination should have been the policy. How do we reconcile that there were people there who had personal views of extermination 
and yet uh, carried out the government position of removal? Well, if they're in the military, they're taking orders, and they followed them. Uh, and that's not a bad thing necessarily, um, uh, especially when it comes to saving lives uh, or sparing lives, which in this particular case would be more the latter. But uh, it's one of those things that uh, you know, an individual has to make a decision at a particular time. Uh, and surprisingly, don't forget, and you've seen the letters, and I have too, and John and Mary Lou when they put out the Vinton Diaries, there's a lot of empathy for the Seminole cause by white officers. And they're not going to carry out an extermination policy if they can absolutely in every which way possibly avoid it. Uh, they thought that was inhuman. They thought the, they were against the war, many of them, as you well know. Uh, it was a situation where, you know, morally, where are you going to come down on? You know, where, what side are you going to come down on? And I think the officer class uh, showed some class, as a matter of fact, uh, in actually carrying out the removal policy. Many of them were aware of the brutality of the and the shortages that were uh, constantly being foisted on uh, the Army and the Indians uh, by the, the various traders along the way. And the fact that, uh, you know, they weren't supposed to take the blacks if they were with the Seminoles, but uh, all the um, people out, uh, basically they're out there hunting blacks to put them back into slavery. They're out there. Uh, they, would, they could care less about what the Indians, they wanted the slaves because they could sell them. The Indians would be rebellious, even though we had enslaved Indians for eons in, uh, from Florida and uh, New England, etc. That was not a not a new context at all. But uh, they were looking primarily for African laborers because that's what they needed. And that's what they desired. And by golly, we're going to get it if we exterminate the Indians. So much the better. That was a lot of attitude that way. But the officer class that actually had to carry out the policy. Did a overall did a, did a respectable job that way. How much merit is there to that argument that this was a de facto war of extermination as opposed to one where there were isolated cases? I don't think that, that it wasn't a war of extermination. I, I really don't because of the fact that even though Jessup had some personal animosity against individual uh, leaders of the Seminole group, uh, they had betrayed him, he thought, uh, embarrassed him as a commanding officer, etc., uh, he still went through with removal. He didn't, uh, and he didn't condone, and they actually prosecuted uh, some uh, individuals under his command uh, for violating that, for killing Indians uh, in outright cold blood. Uh, so, I mean, it, it, there's nothing black and white, as you know, in, in, in any of this history, uh, other than the fact that there are whites and there are blacks, and there's, of course, reds. Uh, in, in, uh, in fighting each other, right. uh, or fighting with each other, for that matter. In uh, certain aspects, the protracted Second Seminole War was one of attrition, and in other aspects, it was one of exhaustion. Which is more accurate, in, in your view, or might you say it was both at the same time, attrition and exhaustion? Well, attrition, you basically wear down, the whole concept of attrition is you're going to wear down and eventually... Uh, eliminate your enemy, uh, either they're going to surrender or and you're not going to be able to exist uh, under the constant pressure. Uh, exhaustion, uh, we just keep on fighting until we, we fall down from exhaustion, uh, or basically end the war because we can't accomplish uh, what the goal uh, is in the end. Uh, it's a fine, it sounds like a fine line between the two, but it isn't. Uh, attrition is a bona fide a weapon, uh, strategy in war, 
Uh, we used it a lot, especially the First World War, which I just finished writing about. Yeah, <laughs> uh, that was that was that was brutality against brutality. There, it was unbelievable to more you read about it. But in this particular case, I think this was more of an exhaustion. Uh, we were going to you know, fight until we were exhausted. And when they did finally negotiate or try to negotiate in 1842, uh, they didn't sign a treaty because it was never never going to be presented to tribal council, that's for sure. Uh, but they basically said, okay, uh, we're going to agree not to fight if you agree not to fight. And the Seminoles, of course, were happy to do that. Uh, they've been fighting all these all these years. It wasn't, wasn't bad enough they'd had to fight the Creeks. Now they have to fight the American government for all these years straight through, too, from Andrew Jackson's invasion further south. It's a long-ass war. And people don't you know, realize that this is really a continuous conflict uh, from the get-go. From the you know, what we call the first Seminole War, you can trace that back to uh, the destruction of the Negro Fort. You can go uh, even further back into the uh, various problems that we had with Spain, etc. I mean, that's, yeah, there's a continuum here. This is a long, this is a long process. This is not something that's uh, easily uh, defined and say, okay, this is going to be it. Uh, it just didn't happen that way. There was nothing uh, that was quick about it. And so the exhaustion, uh, I think, is a, a better argument in reality because attrition means you're going to force somebody to uh, give in because uh, you, you have eliminated all the options for them. Well, we never eliminated all of the options for the Seminoles. We can agree the U.S. government strategy was to remove the Seminole from Florida, and how they actually did it was uh, a matter of operations and tactics. Um, before I ask you, before I go into a question about that, I want to see if you can differentiate between a strategic view, an operational view, and a tactical view for op uh, for how you conduct your campaigns. First of all, operations are a relatively new concept from the 1970s and 80s, uh, based on stuff they observed with the Soviet Union, believe it or not, um, if you want to get into operations. But the operational sentiment uh, is... Basically, what you, you have the tactics or the things that you use to fight individual battles and how you uh, go about setting up your uh, your system for supplies, re, uh, replacements, repairs, that kind of thing. Uh, and then, of course, the tactics of uh, are, are you going to sucker them into a, a trap? Are you going to do a surprise element? Uh, the kind of tactics you choose to win a particular battle, which goes into the concept of an operation, which modern day, the operations are basically uh, larger uh, scales of uh, planned campaigns. You get, you've got to win this battle, this battle, and this battle to accomplish this part of the operation, which is part of the strategic goal, which is the overall end game uh, in what's going to happen here. How well did the U.S. government do strategically in this regard then? Pathetic would be a nice word. Uh, they really didn't have a, a strategy other than sending numbers uh, and s sending uh, the troops into the area and letting the local commander, uh, like like Scott or somebody else, uh, make make those decisions about uh, how they're going to accomplish the goal. Um, the end game was it was basically to get the Seminoles out of Florida. Uh, however, you know how to do it was never really contemplated. Uh, Jackson, of course, who was the president at the time, uh, he already knew how to do it, or at least he thought he did. And uh, he, of course, had a, a, a really pathetic uh, appreciation of what the local militia people can do. Uh, he had no use for them, for the most part, even though he had been a militia leader almost his entire career. Uh, 
but those were people he knew uh, and you know, had personal loyalties to him. Uh, but he had uh, really no idea uh, how good uh, or bad uh, the local militias were, especially here in Florida, Georgia, and Alabama. I mean, he had some idea about Alabama, of course, but um, he was not um, too impressed with what was going on. Uh, the, uh, the regular Army guys uh, despised the militias uh, and did not work well with them. Uh, Winfield Scott, as you know, was hung in effigy here in Tallahassee uh, when he left Florida because uh, he just simply said they're a bunch of lazy women uh, who basically could not fight, would not fight, and won uh, American lives to be sacrificed, American soldiers' lives to be sacrificed for their personal profit and benefit. Uh, people in Florida didn't take kindly to that kind of attitude, <laughs> needless to say. Needless to say. One could say, and this is a larger concept, which is grand strategy. The U.S. had a grand strategy, which was Indian removal in the southeast, and then open up all that land to settlers, sell that land for huge profits, which then pays off the national debt. But strategically, it seemed more like they were presented with the Dade battle. And so instead of thinking of a, a reasoned, carefully thought out strategy, it was let's go get revenge. Let's do a punitive operation. Uh, all towards, and we're definitely going to have to militarily take them and remove them from Florida. But it doesn't seem like they actually thought about uh, a larger picture of, you know, after we do our punitive stuff, if we did leave them in a certain area, we could not spend so much money and we could get about our business. Um, they invented the strategy to address the, the fact that they were angry about being attacked by the Seminole. Well, I'm not even too sure they, uh, I would agree with a lot of that, but I'm not too sure they actually had a quote-unquote strategy. Uh, we, I mean, they knew that the end game was going to be the removal, but getting to that point, then we get down to the operational level, did they really have an idea of how that was going to be done? Uh, and you know, probably the, the most thoroughly planned campaign was the 1837-38 Jessup campaign, where he had the four prongs. He basically had them, he had the group with Zachary Taylor come, coming down to Kissimmee in that central part of Florida. Uh, he had Hernandez and friends on the, on the East Coast. Uh, Jessup himself was going to bring them down the St. John's River, and of course, Priscilla Smith uh, and uh, his Louisiana group, plus uh, about 800 people total, were going to come up to Caloosahatchee uh, and uh, basically entrap them in the Everglades area. Uh, obviously, the only, and, and we shouldn't forget, of course, the little minor detail of setting up Fort Poinsett down in, uh, uh, down in Cape Sable area, uh, and where Dr. Lawson, the physician, <laughs> Surgeon General of the Army was in command, uh, with a field command, if you can believe that. Uh, don't recall Lawson ever fighting another battle, frankly, but uh, he was a medical man and uh, not a bad one for the day. Logistically, it was a nightmare. Uh, the boats that he'd, uh, you know, he'd asked for uh, were not built in time or they weren't built correctly uh, and they didn't work in the floor. They were too deep, deep, too deep of draft uh, to be able to navigate the waters that he wanted to have uh, those vessels on. And, of course, the uh, fact that they were trying to... <laughs> the only major thing that came out of that was the Battle of Lake Okeechobee uh, on Christmas Day of 1837. Uh, and that was, as we we know, tactically one of the biggest blunders. Uh, strategically, I'm not, <laughs> it didn't have anything to do with the strategy, per se, but it did have a lot to do with the operational event of it. Uh, at least entrapping the Seminoles enough to cause a major uh, European-style battle, which if that were a European-style battle, which we all have to laugh at, um, yeah, we lost. 
128 to 9, uh, or we really don't know exactly how many Seminoles were killed or injured, uh, whatever. But it was well-planned retreat. The, the canoes were waiting on the banks of, uh, and uh, to take everybody out of there quickly. Uh, and uh, was, I think it was 120. I think uh, was the loss of the American Army in that battle. Uh, lost a lot of good officers, uh, and uh, it was just a, a total. It, it just doesn't make Zachary Taylor look like a really great general. What would you say was the seminal strategy throughout the war? It might have uh, it might have uh, evolved or adapted, but the uh, basic strategy, if we're to say, well, what were the Seminoles trying to do? Well, basically, it was a, it was a guerrilla warfare in, in the usual in the in the real sense of the word. It was a Fabian kind of uh, philosophy. You know, keep on fighting, and then delaying and retreating. Uh, fight, re- delay, retreat, uh, and uh, that was the way they were going to survive. They kind of knew that from the get-go. Uh, is, is that a strategy? Uh, yeah, if, if Fabian is, uh, if the Fabian uh, kind of warfare is a strategy, then it was a strategy. But I think the biggest strategy they had overall, the grand plan, was survival, and that was the best way to do that uh, under the circumstances. To get survival, they had to get the army to leave them alone. If the army left them alone, they can survive. And so all these things would be done um, to get the army to see that, uh, as we say, the lemon wasn't worth the squeeze. Uh, they didn't need to continue fighting here because they weren't going to remove the Seminole uh, as a whole. And uh, it was going to be, someone else said, a reckless cost of uh, blood and treasure. And when the army would finally realize that, then maybe they'd pick up and go home. And then those Seminole who were there could live in peace. Well, essentially that worked. Uh, when you stop and think how many Seminoles were left at the end of the Second Seminole War here, it's, it's a sad situation, but essentially the Seminoles did exhaust uh, the United States enough uh, that they left knowing full well that Sam Jones and a number of others were still out there. Yeah, Billy Bolex finally had to surrender, but uh, on, on Bolex Creek in Fort Myers, by the way, in 1858, they still they still had a viable enough group of Seminoles and Mikosukis left, and Tallahassee's, as they sometimes called them up by Lake Pierce, um, that they, they survived. They did survive. The unconquered Seminoles, I think, is what Brent Weissman has called them, uh, or Passy West. Uh, and they basically, they have preserved. One could say that both sides, both sides declared success, but it was something of a pure success for both sides. The the army, of course, took all those casualties and spent all that national treasure and still didn't get all the Seminoles. But with the Seminoles, if we say that there were 5,000 at the start of the conflict and you have 200 left in small little hamlets in the Everglades, I have a problem defining that as a, a great success. They paid a terrible, terrible price, although in the end their success was maybe we'd say better than the army's because they were still there. Essentially, you know, was there an option after, you know, after the end of the Second Seminole War? What was their option? We might say the lesson of the Seminole War is don't get involved in an Indian removal war with the Seminole. What lessons do you draw from the Second Seminole War? First of all, I, uh, I look at the, the improvement of logistics that any anyone studying military history can learn uh, from the Seminole War. I mean, I'm just looking at a, uh, a very narrow focus there, but the things that the that Jessup attempted to do and couldn't get accomplished because of the, and here's, by the way, <laughs> people forget he's a quartermaster general, uh, and he can't get stuff delivered on time. Uh, and we've never, ever in American history delivered on time when it comes to all the necessary things 
uh, that that's our military history. Uh, also, the fact that every time we finish a war, we cut back the military. I'm going back to the days uh, after a war to a point that it becomes ridiculous that you cannot respond quickly enough uh, at the next crisis. But it's an amazing history that we continually do not learn these lessons. I would say the, the lesson of the second, or at least the second Seminole War, the lesson of the second Seminole War is we'll quickly forget the lessons of these wars as soon as they're over if we didn't really want to be in them in the first place. Exactly. That is a very good lesson. What is your greatest surprise in studying the Second Seminole War or the Seminole Wars in general? Basically, how sophisticated the Seminole and uh people are, were and are. Um, they're very intelligent. Uh, they are adaptable. Yeah, I think those, those kind of lessons about how sophisticated some groups were and not others. Um, I think I, I love uh, looking at the logistical side because there's a lot to be learned about what Jessup attended, uh, attempted but didn't succeed in getting uh, and how that could be changed and all those kind of things. And, of course, the, the worst lesson of all was the corruption of all those people who constantly supply the military with defective uh, and uh, watered-down goods. Last question, Joe. Given the culture of the times, in your opinion, was the Second Seminole War inevitable? No, I don't think so. And I think you had indicated earlier in, in some of the questions and uh, some of our dialogue back and forth that, you know, there's a whole lot of wasteland down the south south end of the state that let them go down there. And, and as Jessup had suggested, uh, and was rejected not once but twice by by Poinside, uh, they said, no, we're not going to let them off. We're not going to let them go down there. If they had left them down there in the Everglades or south of uh, say the Polk County, Orange County line area south of that, I think it was you know, a possibility that they could have survived and thrived down there, and who knows what would have happened later on if they amalgamated or whatever. Uh, it wasn't inevitable. Uh, I don't think too much in history is inevitable other than life and death, um, you know, and taxes, of course. Um, but uh, it's, it's one of those things that could have been avoided. Joe, we're out of time. Thanks so much for your astute observations. Anytime, Patrick. Thank you very much for having me. Appreciate it. All right. We'll be in touch. If you enjoyed this show, please take a moment to like us on Facebook at Seminole Wars Foundation. Leave a review on iTunes or your favorite podcast provider. Your reviews and comments help new listeners discover us and help us keep the show going. Visit our website at www.seminolewars.us for blogs, articles, news, books, events, membership information, and how to subscribe to this podcast. We'll be back soon with a new episode of the Seminole Wars Podcast. The Seminole Wars Foundation is a 501c3 nonprofit organization dedicated to preservation, education, and publication of Seminole Wars history throughout the state of Florida. This podcast is copyrighted the Seminole Wars Foundation 2021. All rights reserved. Front bumper music, The Devil's Garden, Roastem, provided by kind permission of Rita Youngman. Back bumper music, Second Seminole Win, by Jed Merrim and Ricky Pittman, courtesy of Ricky Pittman. All rights reserved.